Please open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 5. I want to begin the message by asking you to go with me down to verse number 19, which is at the end of the text that I plan to preach from today, but I want to start here. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And this morning I want to preach for a few moments on the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a missions conference. And if I could say anything to you in regards to missions, it would be this. Missions is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of place. Place is irrelevant. You can get in a plane and fly across a body of water. You'll still be the same person when you get there that you were when you left. You'll not be magically transformed into somebody that loves souls and wants to see lost men saved because you take a plane ride. I've heard people say, well, I took a mission trip and it changed my life. And it makes me wonder why. Is it the color of the skin? Is it the poverty that you see somewhere else? Is it the different food you eat? I want to know why you can't look at a lost man in Shelby, North Carolina and have a heart for a lost man here. And why taking a plane ride changes your life. Your life ought to be changed because men and women are dying and going to hell. In all places, at all times. Nothing magically changes when you go somewhere. Let me illustrate before I go back to the main text here this morning. See, there's over 7 billion people in the world now. Most of them are lost. Missions primarily has to revolve around soul winning. Soul winning has been given a bad name in fundamental circles because of the abuses that some had earlier in fundamentalist history. But we're terrible about pendulum swings. The great heroes of fundamentalism in its early history were soul winners. Men who would drive around Atlanta with a gas can hoping to find somebody without gas so they could stop and help them get gas in their car and tell them about Jesus while they fixed their car. That's how the great churches were built, people that love souls. Now I think that we have come to terms with the fact that some evangelism was abused in the sense that it was rushed and and made trite, and maybe we had professions that were not possessions, and we swung the pendulum to discipleship to the point we've got five people in our churches that can quote Augustine and won't go on visitation. Amen! If I, as a pastor, am going to support somebody to go anywhere, whether it's across Shelby to rescue mission or to a foreign field, I want to know one thing above all else. Do they care about lost men? And if they do, I'm interested. And it doesn't matter where the place is. And if they don't, I'm not interested. Now, today I will purposely share stories, which I'm not apt to always do. But I do it for illustrative purposes as I preach here in a moment through this text. When I was pastoring in Whitehall, Montana, we started a missions program uh, before our first church anniversary. I believe in missions programs. I believe in faith promise with all of my heart. And we would have people in 
to take on for support. And I never have somebody in unless I already plan on supporting them. If you come, you have to mess up to not get it because I'm having you in to give it to you. You're not there to earn anything. I've already decided I'm going to give stuff to you. We're going to start giving to you from the time you walk in, asking you what your needs are. We're not putting you in the Scrunch Motel across town. You're going to, in Greenville, you're going to the General Morgan Inn. First class. I'm going to take care of the Lord's servant. While you're there, I'm going to ask you if you have any needs. And if you have any needs, by the grace of God, we're going to do everything we can to meet them. If you need your tires changed, if you need a computer, whatever it is, we're going to give that to you if we can at all. You're not going to leave our place without us finding out if you need something and us try to meet that need. And when you leave, we're going to make sure you have an offering that will help you for a while. Sometimes we give a year's support up front. Just so you can get on down the road and get your support. So we have you in because we already know we want to give to you. We had this guy come into the church and I had him preach on a Sunday night. And he got up, and, and suspiciously to me, the message was not about missions. Now, let me fill you in on something this morning. I've had multiple conversations now with pastors in different locations, and it gets more difficult all the time to get a missionary in who will actually preach on missions. It's near impossible. They will get up and teach a Sunday school lesson. They'll do some, something about something else, and it'll be over here, it'll be over there. Uh, it, it might even be on marriage. And there's nothing wrong with those messages. But that's not what this conference is about. Stay on track. And so this dude got up, gave a little lesson. I don't remember what it was about, but it wasn't about missions. Never said the first thing about lost men, lost souls, or anything along those lines. And after service was over, we took him out to eat. There's a whole table full of us there. And I thought to myself, self, See if you can help this boy. And uh, I just leaned over to him quietly. He was the only person that could hear us loud in there. And I just began to try to help him. He's just starting deputation. I want him to be able to raise his support. And I said, man, when you go to church, you, you need to preach on missions. And I said, if you can, at least share some illustrations about people that you've led to Christ. Let the pastor know that that's what your life's about and that's what you're going to do when you get there. And uh, he ignored me. Now it wasn't red flags, it was rockets. <laughs> As I leaned into him again, reiterated what I had to say, he finally realized I wasn't going to let it go. And he said, well, he said, I'm just not real good at that. If I take my truck to a mechanic, he says, I'll look it over, but I'm not real good at that. If I go to the doctor with a pain, I slept in a holiday in last night, but I'm not real good at that. If you're going to be a preacher, be a soul winner. It's all about the heart. It's not about a place. It's not about a country. It's not about a trip. It's not about a slideshow. It's about one thing. 
Do you care if people die and go to hell forever? Does that bother you? When I look at this man, the maniac of Gadara, we've been friends for a long time. For about 25 years, we've traveled different places and tried to introduce people to Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for this man's testimony. But I believe this man's included in the scripture so that Jesus could say to us, if I'll save this man, I can save anybody. They came over under the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And we would say about this man, he was demon-possessed. That's a real thing. You believe that Satan is real, right? You believe that the demonic spirits are a real thing. Is that right? It's a Bible-believing college. We know that in a spirit realm, in, within that realm, there's Satan, and then there are the demonic spirits, and they can literally move inside of a body. And so you'll run into people even to this day, that are demon-possessed. The devil lives in them. Who had his dwelling among the tombs. Now that's a strange thing. You should never be fascinated with the things of death. If you're saved by the grace of God, you should be fascinated with the things of life and of joy and of hope and of peace and certainly not the graves. That's weird. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains. He was entirely out of control. And the physical strength that he had under the demonic powers was such that the community couldn't do anything with him. Now, we have an entire nation like that today. People whose lives are tore asunder. And whether they're possessed or not, they're certainly oppressed. And they're certainly influenced. And frankly, outside of Jesus Christ, there's no help for them. We've got pills and we've got asylums and we've got all these things and we're not doing anything for them but medicating them out of their brains. But we're certainly not helping them because the community has no help. They've got programs and institutions and psychologists and psychiatrists and all that's mumbo-jumbo. This man needed a power above and beyond the power that had him possessed. And the community doesn't have that power. Because he had been often bound with fetters and chains, they'd try to do something about him. This all plays out in my mind like this. Here are the men in the community. They know he's there, but they probably try to ignore him. And that's what men do best. Ignore problems. But there is somebody that God gave us that does not ignore problems. They're called wives. (laughs) And I can see in this community the men walk up and down this street and the old dude's over there in the graveyard stark naked and out of his mind screaming, yelling, booing, hollering and scaring people and the men just go, "Ah." he's weird. (laughs) Then all the women gather together and say, something's got to be done. And guess who's going to do it? The men. That's how society functions. (laughs) So the men get together and they say, what are we going to do? I know what, let's chain him. We tried that. New plan. Let's chain him again, bigger chain. This went on and on. It, It happened multiple times. There was no helping the guy. 
And the point is this, the reason they couldn't help him is because they have no help. And fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. We don't even try now, we just medicate them. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. Isn't that a sad picture of humanity? And the cutting and the, and the, the self-harm that takes place today, it's insane really. I may say more about this tomorrow, but America is in bad shape. We're in terrible shape. I describe America this way. America has become a free-range insane asylum. And folks desperately need help. Here the community couldn't do anything, but don't you look at verse 6, but when he saw Jesus. Now things are going to change rapidly. Because now the power of all powers has walked into the picture. The name above all names. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, has now entered this man's world. And things are about to change. But before I go to the change, I want to just stop for a minute to try to point something out to you in reference to the compassion of Christ. There's a difference between the way Jesus Christ looks at these kinds of people and the way we look at these kinds of people. Now look up here. If you're not real careful, you're going to get so sparkly white as a Christian and so isolated among yourselves that you're not even going to know what's going on in the world. You're not going to have any relationships with anybody that's not just like you. And if you're not very careful, these kinds of people will come to repulse you. You won't want to be around them. You won't want to talk to them. You won't want to be near them. You'll be afraid of them because that's them. And this is us. And we're saved and we're clean and we're spick and span and we've got everything together except we don't. And we forget out there, everywhere out there, the next house, the next road, the next street, the next county, the next state, the next nation, that it is an insane asylum with people driven out of their minds without Christ. And that somebody's going to have to go that sees them a little bit differently. Now, if I summarize it, I would say it this way. When the community looked at this man, they saw a nuisance. When Jesus Christ looked at this man, he just saw a lost man with a need. You're really going to have to develop the ability to see people the way Christ sees them. Now, America has drastically changed. When missions was really getting a foothold in fundamentalism, a missionary would be preparing to go to some tribe in Africa and they would come with a slide presentation. How many are old enough to remember slides? And they'd click through the slides. And here would be this dark-skinned guy and he would have tattoos and have a bone through his nose. And great big gobs of things in his ears. He looked like a fishing lure. Be wild-eyed and buggy looking. And when that slide would hit, all the church people would go, <gasps> 1950s, early 1960s, the Lord's people 
Oh, law. Send missionaries. <laughs> Do it. But now the, the light has gone out in America. If she ain't out, she's awful dim. And now you could go to the mall down here and take a few pictures. Go to Africa. Show it to the tribal people and they'd be going, send missionaries. Do something before they come here. Listen, when you have it in us and them mentality, you're never going to win souls. Now, my calling has always been in rural areas, and that doesn't bother me. A lot of people want a big city, and they use demographics and stuff. The only thing you need to know is where God wants you. You can win enough people to Christ, and enough kids will get called to ministry in a town of a 1,000 people. It'll be plenty for you to do if you're where God puts you. And somebody else can go to a large city with a bunch of dreams, and it never work at all. Just go where the Lord puts you, and don't worry about all that nonsense. But when you get there, it can't be us against them. You are them when you're there. Those are your people. You're going to have to learn to identify with them. You don't have to learn to sin with them. But you've got to learn to sit with them. I've been in rural areas. Now, of course, I don't believe the gift of apostles available today. But I like to joke and say I've been called to be the apostle to America's rednecks and hillbillies. My crowd is the beer drinkers and the whiskey chasers and, uh, and the adulterers and the fornicators and the tattoo wearers and the hooplars. They're rough. Some of them are really rough and mean. And I tell you, I love them with all of my heart. I wouldn't want to be around any other group of people unless God moved me. And the rougher they get, it makes no difference to me whatsoever. Especially the young ones. Because I don't look at them as them versus me. They are me. Those are my people. They stay in my home. I can't tell you how many young people spent the night at my house roughing cobs. I don't want my kids raised isolated from the world. I want them to learn to live for God no matter where they are. I've got them over at the house that are as rough and redneck and drunks and dopeheads as you can imagine. They'll stay at the house. They'll be at, sometimes they'll show up at church. Sometimes they won't. But I can say anything I want to with them. I had one pull in the driveway one night, rougher. I mean, just terrible guy. I had a young girl with him. I made friends with him over the years. I can say anything to him. I walked down to the truck, and I looked at that young girl sitting there, rubbed up all over him. And I said, do you know who you're with? You're making a terrible choice. You need to get out away from this guy and move on. That didn't bother him at all. And the reason I can say that to him is because he knows that I view him as us. How do you see people? Are they a nuisance? Or are they just somebody that needs Christ? If you were raised in a Christian home, brought up in a good church, isolated from the world, and then come off to Bible college... You're going to take you several years to finally realize how to get along with actual folks out there somewhere. But if you don't, you're not building a church unless you just gather up people who moved to your area from ambassador. 
Let me tell you something. There's a big difference between winning souls and gathering acceptable people. And there are a lot of pastors in the business of gathering up the acceptable people. Oh, we've got a good family. Well, hallelujah. What about the lost man that you want him to talk to? Jesus Christ in His compassion has the ability to see beyond the faults of others, to see their actual need. It's not about the surface and the tattoos and the drinking and the smoking and all that goes with it. It's about the fact that that is a human being created in the image of God that God Almighty loves with all His heart. When we were in Montana, there was a... A man in their church that was a real soul winner. By the way, most of the best soul winners I've ever known were not preachers. Dwight Smith and I talked about this uh, one time, how many of the evangelists we knew were actual soul winners. It's pretty few. Great preachers, good travelers. Very few soul winners. It's real quiet now, amen. Professionals. Man in our church, great soul winner, all the time trying to get somebody saved. He came to me, he said, there's a family I work with and they're having trouble with their daughter. And uh, I'd like for you to speak to the family. I said, fine. Met them at the church. The church consisted of three rooms. We met in one of the little rooms. It was an old building, run-down building. <coughs> when we sat down, it was the girl. She was like 16, 17. Her mom, her dad, and her aunt. And I was sitting there trying to talk to her, and it was one of those classic deals where she had no intention of ever listening to me. I have found with teenagers this. If they're slid down their chair, they ain't about to listen. They got a button on their behind, and it switches their brains off. You got to get them to set up and pay attention. And I tell them that, set up and look at me. We were talking. She wasn't paying attention. Finally, I looked down, and I know she had on black tennis shoes with skulls on them. Beautiful young teenage girls should never be fascinated with grunge darkness. Your life ought to be sunshine and flowers and pink stuff. You're a beautiful young lady. You ought to act like it. So I looked down, and I said, what about your shoes? They got skulls on them. She set up. She looked at me then because I identified something on her that was important to her. I said, why you got skulls on your shoes? She looked at me, she said, because I hear voices. Well, I said, what's the voice say to you? She said, I'm sitting in my room at night. She said, I've got a skull in my room. If you're 16 and you've got a human skull in your room and you're hearing voices, she said, I sit and listen to this voice. And I said, well, what does the voice say to you? She said, it tries to get me to jump out the window. Second story house, trying to get her to commit suicide. I had no question what the voice was. So I came up with this great plan of exorcism called the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, we don't play hocus pocus. We're not into the nonsense of these deliverance nuts. The deliverance comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
when you run into a stark, raven maniac, the way to handle him is to say this, Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose again the third day. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. It's not your hands on their head. It's not you knocking them backwards. The power of God and the salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shared the gospel with her. She bowed her head to be saved. Her daddy got saved. Her mama got saved. And her aunt got saved. It was a simple matter of Jesus Christ walking into a dark place and expelling the darkness. You can't save people. People getting saved is described in Scripture as a birth. And you can't give birth. But if you love souls, God will often let you be in the delivery room. I want you to skip down with me to verse 13, if you don't mind. And I just want you to notice three words here. And forth with Jesus. And forth with Jesus. Then follow that up with these three words. Gave them leave. The word forthwith has the idea behind it of immediately. See, compassion, it sees the person the way God sees them. And then it does something about it that God would do. What did God do when he met lost people? He saved them. What did the apostles do when they met lost people? They preached the gospel to them. Compassion is the active desire in your heart to do something that must be done. And in our context, that is preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we really believe that hell's forever? Do we really believe that a lost man will go to the great white throne judgment and be cast into the lake of fire? Do we still believe that? And if we do, how can we not have compassion on the people living in their own ignorance about the matter? Or living in defiance of the matter? And how can we not do something? Compassion is when you're driving down the road and you see an elderly lady with a flat tire. And what little something inside of you says, do something. It's a compulsion that ought to be natural for the Christian. And I'll tell you that, compassion will often take you to the lowest places with the lowest people. The Holy Ghost in the Scripture is likened into a river. It's likened to flowing water. Does water run uphill or downhill? The Holy Ghost finds people at their lowest level. And when He comes in with that convicting power of sin and righteousness of judgment, He'll find you as low as you've ever gotten. And no man has ever gone too low. And when he finds you, he will do something. God is not inactive. He's proactive. Sometimes people say, I'm just praying God will do something. What do you mean? That's one thing you don't have to pray. He's been doing something all of his existence. He will continue to do stuff all of his existence. He never stops. The Holy Ghost doesn't have to be jump-started. He can only be suppressed. Quench not the Spirit. If the Holy Ghost is inside of you and actively working, He will be seeking lost men at their lowest level. 
He will be actively doing it. You might ask yourself this a question. If I'm not actively trying to win lost people, why not? Because God is. God is. Don't ever make light of the term soul winning. Don't ever make light of the term soul winner. And if you hear somebody downplay it and try to subvert it, just mark them off and find you a new mentor. All of missions, all of missions, we, we talk about missions, we talk about the going, we talk about the preaching of the gospel, then the baptizing, and then the discipling. You understand if you're not getting people saved, there's nobody to disciple. That's the baseline. That's where it starts. It's getting out there and finding a lost man and trying to get him to Christ. Knowing that you can't do it, but that God can. It's an action. It's a do something. The word in the Great Commission is go, go, go. Not wait, wait, wait. Well, say, I'm studying for the ministry. No, you're preparing for some particulars of the ministry you're going to need help with. But everybody sitting here can care about a lost man. I tell my church people, if you don't feel comfortable yet sharing the gospel, just ask them if you can bring me to see them. Do something. Dr. John Halsey, one of my mentors, and man, I served at Great Hope. He lived right a couple houses down from me. He was all the time giving me stuff. Called me when I was on deputation to go out west, and he said, uh, he said, Brother Tracy, I want you to pray about something. I said, what? He said, missionary in Alaska, they bought a boat to go around to the Aleutian Islands to preach to the people on the Aleutian Islands, and he was out jogging, and he had a heart attack. He's dead. We need somebody to come to Alaska and get their uh, license to be a captain and to go around to all these communities on uh, southeast Alaska to do this. Then he told me, he said, when we were raising the money to buy this boat, a pastor said to us, you know some of those communities are not large enough to sustain a local independent church, correct? Brother Halsey said, yeah. He said, but we can do something or we can do nothing. Of course we know what the ideal is, but sometimes you just need to get people saved. Sometimes you just need to preach the gospel to them. I want you to look with me at verse 15. And they come to Jesus and see him and look at the tents here. Somebody tell me what it is. Was. Was possessed. Doesn't that mean used to be? Isn't that putting things in the past and making them different now? I call this the, the fruit of compassion. Here's when you get to see a life changed. It is an absolute privilege from God to be allowed to, to win a man to Christ. To tell somebody how to be saved and to see them saved. And what you get to experience is the work of God in their life and you get to see it with your own eyes. Here's a man whose life was ruined and wrecked by the power of Satan and now the scripture can say about him was possessed. He's been kicked out. He's been evicted. He no longer resides in this man. He has a change in masters. And then he says, and had the legion sitting. He has a change in behavior. 
When you're young, you want to do something exciting. But when you're wore out, you just want to rest. And this man right here had been run ragged night and day for years. And when he got saved, brother, it wasn't running the aisles and screaming. He wanted, he just wanted to sit there and thank God he was saved. He had a change in behavior and clothed. He had a change in dress. Isn't that something? You can preach about all the external stuff you want to, but till a man gets born again, he's not capable of doing any of it. Not with his heart. He can conform, but it's no good. And in his right mind, no Xanax, no psychiatrist, just Christ. God has the capacity to take a man out of his head and put him in his right mind. One side note, and you better prepare for this. Your churches are going to be filled with drug addicts. And I don't mean the kind who go out and get their dope from the kid on the corner with a hoodie. I mean the kind that get their dope from the dope dealer with a white jacket. A lot of them don't believe in your churches in the sufficiency of Christ for all things, especially the mental state. Now there's all this talk even in churches about mental health and mental awareness. Would somebody tell me what a mental is? Is it my brain? Is that what we're talking about? Is, is the mental the brain? And if it is, can it be fixed? And if it's the brain, can the pill you're giving me do the fixing? You all better think through that because you're going to be overwhelmed with it when you get out there and have a church. People off their rockers who will not believe in the sufficiency of Christ... And they're medicating themselves no differently than the teenager smoking dope. This man had a change in his mind, his mental state. And then it says, And they began to pray him to depart out of their coast. And when he was coming in the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Now he's got a change in desires. See, he wants to do differently. He wants to follow Christ. But it wasn't Christ's will for this man to go to a foreign field. It was for his will for him to go home and to tell people that Jesus had compassion on them. In verse 20, And he departed and began to publish in the couplets how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Let's talk about people for a minute. In our response to people. Just a couple of illustrations here briefly. Now, listen to me. I'd hate to waste my entire time down here this morning. I got things to do. But if just a few people would decide, you know, I think I, I want God to help me with this matter. I want to be a soul winner. It would sure would be worth it to me. I'd just like to see one kid that didn't want people to die and go to hell. Don't worry about your first pastorate. Don't worry about your first youth pastorate. Don't worry about what field you're going to. Worry about somebody you know here in Shelby that's lost. Pray for them. Got to get them saved. I've said this, and I don't know if the missionaries agree with this or not, but before we send somebody to the field, we ought to give them an empty Sunday school room and ten chairs. And when those ten chairs are filled with people that they've won to Christ and baptized and discipled, then and only then will we consider support somewhere else. 
I was in Chesapeake, Virginia, and I was a youth pastor for John Godfrey. And you know the definition of youth pastor is anything the pastor doesn't want to do. Well, one of the chores that fell to me was taking phone calls that nobody else wanted. So a phone call got bumped down to me one day, and it was a man in jail who'd used his phone call and looked through the uh, phone book and called the church. Didn't even know us. Hispanic guy. And he wanted me to come over to the jail from the church and bring him cigarettes. So I said to him, I said, well, listen, I'm not bringing you no cigarettes, but I'd like to come and visit you. Can I come over to the jail and see? You know, in jail now, you have to be put on a list to go see people. So he said, yeah, come on down and see me. Probably still hoping for cigarettes. So on the way down there, I got in Norfolk, Virginia, and there was a big construction going on downtown, and the whole place was a wreck. I couldn't find the jail because we're so old, there was no GPSs in so I had this old thing that he called a map in the church van sitting on the side of the road with my map open trying to figure out to get from here two blocks to there and could not get there. It was so frustrating. Saw this dude cruising up alongside of the van coming up toward the window and I thought, I'll ask this guy here for directions. So he gets up there and stops and looks at me and I said, pardon me, sir. There's a black guy. I said, uh, could you tell me how to get down to the jail? And this dude went off. I mean, he went crazy. And uh, he was yuck, 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 and this. Well, I found out he had just got out of jail, and they wouldn't give him a ride home, and boy, he was ticked. Somebody asked him how to get back. <laughs> he went to throwing his hands down in his pockets, and finally he went to his back pocket, and I thought, oh, my soul, he's going to shoot me. I'll be on the 6 o'clock news. He pulled out his papers where he just got out of jail. Ranting and raving like a nut. All of a sudden he looked over and he saw Great Hope Baptist Church on the van. And he stopped. He got real quiet. He looked at me right in the eye and he said, I struggle with alcohol. Lord moved in there. And I said, well, I've had trouble with some things in my life, and the Lord helped me. I believe He can help you. Made an arrangement with him to go down where he lived in the community where he lived. He was so afraid for a white guy to be in his community, he wouldn't let me walk from the van to his apartment without him coming to get me. I'll take an escort. <laughs> Went in. Just a simple matter, I sat down, shared the gospel with him. He got down on his knees. I still remember it like it was yesterday. Bowed his head and trusted Christ. Amen. Give you one more. I was in Connecticut in a missions conference at, uh, I can't think of that guy's name. He's real big into church planting. Townsley. I was at Townsley's. They had us in a nice motel room. And... Uh, I had to leave on a Wednesday to be in West Virginia to preach a missions conference that night from Connecticut to West Virginia. And this, it was doable, but I had to get up early and get on with it. I'm a notoriously slow driver. Everybody hates riding with me. And I don't know why, though, because I'm real popular. Everybody lines up and follows me everywhere I go. <laughs> Sometimes I pull over and just wave at them as they go by so they don't think I'm a stuck up. 
So I get up, and I'm in a mad rush, trying to get to the car. It's like 4, 4.30 in the morning. And walked out there, and this big old black boy standing there. He's a big old rascal. And uh, he was a night auditor. And he, for some reason, he was standing over there where the breakfast foods would go, just bent over like this. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said, you need to talk to him. And I said, no, Lord, you know I'm in a hurry. I've got to get to West Virginia. So I got my stuff. I went on out to the car, put my stuff in the car, and the Lord spoke to me again and said, you need to talk to that man. And I said, no, Lord, I can't talk to him about you. I've got to preach a missions conference. Because <laughs> there's this trap where you can become a professional speaker but you don't win anybody to Christ ever. So I said, all right. I walked back in. I walked over to him, standing there at that thing. Began to talk to him. Finally, I asked him if he was a Christian, just to try to get in the discussion. And I'll never forget this. With his head down, he said, no, sir, I'm not a Christian. I'm a Baptist. And I thought, no dry words have ever been spoken. <laughs> so he said he'd moved from, I think, North Carolina to Connecticut to play football for UConn. And while he was up there, he married a woman who wouldn't let him go home. He was miserable up north. Hated it. His wife wouldn't let him leave. He's a miserable dude. But when he signed up to play football, they gave him a form for his personal information, and it asked for what religion he was, and he picked Baptist. <laughs> Lost as he could be. I tried to witness to him, and tried and tried and tried there talking to him, and I knew it was going to take longer than what I had. And finally, we wound the discussion down. I got in the car and left and got out on the interstate, and the Lord said, you're not done yet, and now you've left. Because I had this professional speaker thing kicked in. What's worse than a pastor that don't care about souls? Not much. What's worse than an evangelist that don't love souls but just loves meetings? Not much. What's worse than a missionary that loves all the trappings of missionaryism but doesn't care about lost men? Not much. I got on the phone I called... John Bells. John Bells was a USA director with BIMI and a great man of God. I've known Dr. Bells now, I guess, for 30 years, close, no, 25 years. He's had all the titles and the positions that I guess BMI has to offer for a stateside guy. But one thing I noticed about Bells is this wherever he goes, people get saved. Amazing how that works. I called Dr. Bells and told him the story that I just shared with you, and I said, will you please talk to this guy? Trying to get myself off the hook. That night after the conference was over, Dr. Bells went and found him, sat down at a table with him, and led him to Christ. Now, I might have had that privilege myself if I hadn't have been in such a hurry to be a professional missionary. Because I had to raise support to go somewhere else when there's a lost man right in front of me. Young people, as we get ready to give the invitation, this is my question. 
and I've asked this in a lot of churches. Are you actively involved right now, presently, in trying to get some lost man saved? You're praying for him. You're witnessing to him. You're trying to share the gospel with him. You're trying to get him saved. I mean, you're working at it. I've estimated over the years in the churches I preach in, if, if for every hundred people, there's about five people who care about lost people. When I first went to a larger church out of Bible college, I was absolutely stunned that a church could run over 300 people and give over the years millions of dollars to missions and have three people show up on visitation. Because if you can give $500 a month to missions and that soothes your conscience not to care about the guy in your town, you are a hypocrite of hypocrites. So are you going to be a professional minister? Or are you going to try to win somebody to Christ?